They say oil and water don't mix, and I think the residents of Orange County got a reminder of that recently when oil washed up on their beaches, courtesy, allegedly, of a gash, probably from a, a ship's anchor in an offshore oil pipeline. We thought that Dan Barker would be just the guy to talk to us about that because he is an environmental journalist in Sacramento. He's been on our show before. Well, he focuses on water issues, and and this is certainly one of those. If you go to counterpunch.org, you'll find that Dan's got something like seven articles in the last month alone related to offshore well permits and uh, oil spills, etc., etc. He is the guy we need to talk to, and I'm happy to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Dan Bacher. Yeah, good afternoon, Doug. You were pointing out, I dare say, 10 years ago that all of this offshore oil drilling was just not such a good idea. Yeah. And this has been going on for many, many years. For over 100 years, it's been offshore drilling off the coast. There's a misconception that many people have that there's no new oil wells that are approved off the California coast. And that comes from the fact that new federal leases are banned off the California coast. Also, there are state leases, and they don't have any new leases, at least in recent years. Within those existing leases, there's been a plethora of oil and gas wells that have been approved in recent years. How does that happen? Basically, the oil and gas regulators for the state of California, they approve them. And particularly under Jerry Brown, they were rubber stamping them because he was very tight with big oil and big gas and the utilities. He received over $9.8 million from those three groups. And, and it's called CalGEM. That's the, that's the new acronym for the oil and gas regulator. They issued 150 permits for offshore wells since January 1st of this year as of October 1st. Wow. Five of these permits for were for new drilling, and the remaining were for reworks of old wells. But the fact is that right now, they're still issuing oil and gas well permits. And this is just a fraction of the ones that are on land. I'm still unclear. I'm leasing an apartment from you. It doesn't mean I can go, you know, occupy the apartment next door. They're not issuing new leases. How is it you can drill a new well? You can't expand the area beyond what's been been issued. In other words, an uh, oil company uh, apply, applies for a new lease. They want to build a, let's say, they want to new, build a new platform so there's some waters that haven't been drilled before. The thing is that California's waters are heavily drilled, at least in Southern California. There's oil wells all over the place. And this is the misconception that people have. They think that the ban on offshore leases led to the end of new offshore oil drilling. Under Jerry Brown, there were at least 200 offshore oil well permits that were approved by his regulators. And one of the problems is that many times these regulators that the governor chooses are people from the oil industry, like the current director of CalGEM, which is the division of the Department of Conservation, he worked for Chevron. So they employ a lot of people from the oil industry. 
to regulate the oil industry. What a surprise. Right. The Western States Petroleum President from 2009 to 2012, she chaired the Marine Life Protection Act initiative to create marine protected areas in Southern California. She was head of what they called the Blue Ribbon Task Force okay. to craft those. So she was the top top official on that panel. Now, we, we talked about this on the show some years back briefly. Let, let's, let's go back to that and remind people that there's offshore marine sanctuary areas. And uh, I guess, as I understand it, I mean, and you're a big fish guy, a fish con- conservation guy. I guess they're restricted fishing in these areas, but not necessarily restricted oil extraction. Right. The clearest evidence of this was in 2014 when the California legislature voted against a bill to essentially ban um, the threat of offshore oil drilling in the Vandenberg State Marine Reserve because there was a company that was planning to do slant drilling, have a uh, pipeline go through the marine protected area. And they voted it down. In other words, I don't, I don't think they ever instituted that project. Okay. But the fact is that they voted against protecting a marine protected area. And it gets worse because um, Frack Tracker Alliance and I found out that in the um, one particular ecological reserve, the Bolsa Chica Ecological right. Reserve in Orange County, in the same region where this oil spill occurred, they have over 100 operational wells, oil and gas wells that are still in operation, and they're right adjacent to to marine protected areas. Let me ask you this. Does, uh, when you drive to Southern California, you, you can see offshore all these platforms out there. Does every single one of those have a pipeline bringing the oil to shore? Yeah. Okay. And one of those pipelines is the one that, because they didn't maintain it, the one that was run by Plains All-American, where they got, uh, you know, so corroded that it just, it just fell apart and spilled all, all that oil off of Fugio Beach in Santa Barbara in 2015 mm-hmm. and of course where did the, the oil from that oil spill go right into the marine protected <laughs> areas yeah. that were created by a big oil lobbyist i mean you can't make this stuff up california gets way too too much credit for its green policies in many ways it's it's very backwards in its environmental policy about how much of california's oil comes from these 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 platforms that are offshore rather than than on land do you have we have a number on that it's just a fraction of what's what's created on land or the biggest area where they drill for oil is kern county there's a real good comparison calgem the regulatory agency issued those 150 permits for offshore well since january 1st but newsom's oil regulators on shore have approved 9,728 oil and gas drilling permits since he took office in January 2009. And this is uh, done by an analysis of the state's own data by Consumer Watchdog and Frack Tracker Alliance, which are two great groups that dig into the data. 
So you're almost 10,000, getting real close to 10,000 oil and gas drilling permits that Newsom's administration has approved since January 2019. Uh, Given that we're all looking to the future and global warming and how we need to cut back on fossil fuels, it seems odd to me that we are going gung-ho like this for oil drilling that is so potentially dangerous to the environment. If the numbers are like only a small percentage, it wouldn't significantly affect California's output if we were just to stop it entirely. Right. And that's what a lot of environmental justice, climate justice, conservation, and public interest groups are calling for. Do you think there's any chance that that, that's going to make any headway? Well, they have made some headway. And first of all, Newsom administration has agreed to a phase-out of all oil and gas drilling by 2045. Now, that's way into the future, I know, but he has agreed to a phase-out of oil and gas. 24 years from now. Right. And he has set up a process with the oil and gas regulators that will essentially ban fracking by 2024. People get real excited about that, and that's a good thing. But guess what? Guess how much the percentage of drilling is fracking? 2%, according to the state's own records. I'm surprised there's any in California. You hear about fracking, you know, in, in, in the East Coast, in the in the, uh, the strata there in Pennsylvania and the like, but I didn't realize it was going here at all. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're fracking right now as we speak. <laughs> And they were, they were fracking offshore. Wow. Over 200 oil wells that were being fracked offshore. <laughs> oh, man. But that was over a period of, I think, uh, 20 years. But right now there's a lawsuit stopping the fracking. Well, I know there was always oil seeps. People used to say, well, you know, Santa Barbara Channel, there was always some natural seeps through the geological strata, but busting new holes in those strata just doesn't seem like a good idea. I know, and it's kind of like when I wrote my article, the first thing that came to my mind is this was inevitable. When you got the regulatory apparatus in California so controlled by the oil industry, that's what happens. But I mean, he's taken small steps to move forward. Yesterday, Newsom had a big conference um, down in Southern California in Wilmington in an oil drilling region. And they produced a draft rule to create setbacks of 3,400 feet, which is more so than any other state. That means that there'll be setbacks between oil and gas wells and between homes, schools, houses, and other facilities. Do you see that having a big impact? This is only new oil wells. It assumes that there are going to be new oil and gas drilling, that these setbacks would uh, would occur. And I guess people don't realize uh, that it, it might be in their back. I mean, Southern California certainly, I know at one time, was kind of like the the Texas of America. There were oil wells all over the L.A. basin, and I guess, I guess they pumped a lot of it out and, and depleted the wells. But it's still going on, uh, gas and oil, uh, even in Northern California, and even in Sacramento County. I don't know exactly how many... Oil and gas wells are in Sacramento County. County, they're all on the near the Sacramento River in the Delta, right? Um, because that's where the gas is located. I, I don't think they've even included 
the oil and gas wells in their climate plan for the county. Hmm. I was at a protest today led by the Sunrise Movement and a number of youth environmental justice groups, and they did proclaim what happened yesterday as, as a victory, something that they've been pushing for for many years. But the problem is, is that what they're doing is postponing the big thing that they got to do, which is stop taking the oil out of the ground. And as of right now, California is scheduled, and this isn't in stone, okay, because they still got to de- develop a process to do it, but it's, it's slated to be oil and gas well free by 2045. So right. who knows what the world will look like <laughs> That's a in long... 2045. I mean, climate change is happening now. Yeah. We've got to stop the, this, this proliferation of at least new and reworked oil wells right now. Particularly offshore, I would say, because, I mean, Huntington Beach is just a, a wonderful resource for California. This beautiful, long stretch of sand. And to have that followed by oil... Uh, I guess that the upside of this is it does draw a lot of attention to things we're doing wrong. Right, but it's like when I, when I heard that they had an oil spill, I said, here we go again. I've been talking about this, how in spite of people's beliefs, and I've seen a bunch of press releases from environmental groups about you know the great strides they've made towards uh, protecting the coast, but California coast is not protected from oil and gas drilling right now. It's still an oil and gas extraction zone. I mean, and the people that actually live near the ocean, they're the ones that see it. Sure. Well, Dan, you're our go-to guy on these very issues. Uh, as things progress in the, in the weeks and months to come, we were probably going to have to sadly invite you back to get an update on this very topic. Yes. I wanted to say it isn't all doom and gloom. Newsom's Administrators are still proving oil and gas wells, both onshore and offshore, but the administration has made some small first steps forward. All right. One thing we did not touch on today we need to touch on in the future is the fact that you've been very up on uh, the fisheries in California, yes. uh, salmon, and the Delta smelt in particular. W- would you come back in a couple of weeks and talk about, I know you've posted this on Facebook, the fact that no one can find any Delta smelt, and that can't nope. be good. They may be extinct in the wild. We don't know yet for sure. Good Lord. All right, let's bring you back soon. Dan Bacher, thanks. Okay, thank you very much, Doug. You know, it's really sad to contemplate how we continue to see oil spill disasters all over the world from blowouts of, of pipelines from ruptures in the seafloor caused by mining, and in some cases, spills from oil tankers. I think everybody remembers the Exxon Valdez in Alaska from a couple decades ago. One incident we, we perhaps paid too little attention to was one that took place in Australia back in July of 1991. In fact, I'm looking right now at a, at a report from the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, which is on the internet. Referring to the July 21, 1991 incident wherein the Greek tanker Kirky lost part of its bow off the coast of Western Australia, and which resulted in a major pollution incident. There was also a bit of a fire associated with the loss of the bow. 
Some of you may have run into a, a summary of this incident, which, which is available on YouTube. Uh, but if you haven't, we've thoughtfully decided to provide it for you now. Senator Collins, thanks for coming in. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. This ship that was involved in the incident off Western Australia this week... Yeah, the one the front if... fell off? Yeah. Yeah, that's not very typical. I'd like to make that point. Well, how is it untypical? Well, there are a lot of these ships going around the world all the time, and very seldom does anything like this happen. I just don't want people thinking that tankers aren't safe. Was this tanker safe? Well, I was thinking more about the other ones. The ones that are safe? Yeah, the ones the front doesn't fall off. Well, if this wasn't safe, why did it have 80,000 tonnes of oil on it? Well, I'm not saying it wasn't safe. It's just perhaps not quite as safe as some of the other ones. Why? Well, some of them are built so the front doesn't fall off at all. Well, wasn't this built so the front wouldn't fall off? Well, obviously not. How do you know? Well, because the front fell off and 20,000 tonnes of crude oil spilled into the sea caught fire. It's a bit of a giveaway. I'd just like to make the point that that is not normal. Well, what sort of standards are these uh, oil tankers built to? Oh, very rigorous maritime engineering standards. What sort of thing? Well, the front's not supposed to fall off for a start. And what other things? Well, there are uh, regulations governing the uh, materials that they can be made of. What materials? Well, cardboard's out. And? No cardboard derivatives. Like paper? No paper. No string, no sellotape. Rubber? No, rubber's out. Um, they've got to have a steering wheel. There's a minimum crew requirement. What's the minimum crew? Oh, one, I suppose. So the allegations that they're just designed to carry as much oil as possible uh, oh, and all the consequences, I mean, that's ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. These are very, very strong vessels. So what happened in this case? Well, the front fell off in this case by all means, but it's very unusual. But Senator Collins, why did the front book fall off? Well, a wave hit it. A wave hit it? A wave hit the ship. Is that unusual? Oh, yeah. At sea chance in a million. So what do you do to protect the environment in cases well, like this? the ship was towed outside the environment. Into another environment? No, 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 it's been towed beyond the environment. It's yes, not in the environment. A... No, but from one environment to another environment. No, it's beyond the environment. It's not in an environment. It well, has it been towed be beyond the environment. Well, what's out there? Nothing's out there. Well, there must be something there out there. There is nothing out there. All there is is sea and birds and fish. And? And 20,000 tonnes of crude oil. And what else? And a fire. And anything else? And the part of the ship that the front fell off. But there's nothing else out there. Senator Collins, thanks it's for joining us. a complete us. void. Yeah, we're out of time. Environment's perfectly safe. That was, of course, the two comedians from Australia, John Clark and Brian Daw, and one of what I think is their funniest bit. Clark would habitually portray either a news reporter or a government official, and then Daw would grill him about, about what he was taking part in. I think as a direct result of that bit of comedy, which you can find on the web, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority decided to put like 13 pages of explanation of what really took place back in 1991. I don't think they would have bothered otherwise. And uh, it it is worthy of note that it's true. A part of the bow did fall off. And there was a fire. But the truth is nobody claimed that they towed the ship out of the environment. I have before me an item from the uh, headlines, headline news, that we addressed on this program some time ago, although I'm dismayed to take a look at how long ago that really was. And it turns out it was February 2006, show number 193. We spoke with then-Assemblyman David Jones about legislation he was getting passed to regulate conservatorships in California. This matter was of some interest to us because... um, I'd observed, I would say, an abuse of the system, which took place to an elderly neighbor of mine. A relative came in from uh, back east, managed to seize control of her assets against her will. And we're sad to note that 15 years later, it appears that singer Britney Spears is the victim of, apparently, some conservatorship abuse, or at least so it has been alleged. BuzzFeed decided to take a look at America's guardianship industry, 
and reported some of the following. In local courts across the country, often woefully unfit for the sweeping power they command, guardians, lawyers, and expert witnesses appear frequently before the same judges in an established network of overlapping financial and professional interests. They are often paid from the estate of the person whose freedom is on the line, creating powerful incentives to form guardianships and keep them in place. Article in BuzzFeed quotes J. Ronald Denman, former state prosecutor and Florida lawyer, saying the judges know the lawyers, the lawyers know each other. The amount of abuse is crazy. You're going against a rigged system. Without being convicted of any crime, those declared incapacitated face some of the most severe measures the courts can take against any U.S. citizen. Most freedoms articulated in the U.N. Universal Declaration of Human Rights are denied to people under full guardianship. They can lose their rights to vote, marry, start a family, decide where they live, consent to medical treatment, spend their money, seek employment, or own property. Here's the part that really got my attention. Thousands of professional guardians, lawyers, and corporations now hold sway over assets totaling tens of billions of dollars. Some guardians have hundreds of people under their control. And despite the public perception that guardianship is a protective measure for older adults nearing death, the system traps large numbers of young people. I don't have time to read from this article at great length. We recommend that you seek it out or find some other references to read up on this because this is, this is really actually a big deal. BuzzFeed said no comprehensive data exists on the guardianship system and courts in many states keep case documents under seal, making it impossible to say for sure how many people are under its control. Estimates have put the number of adult guardian cases at more than 1 million, a figure that experts say is rising. With no federal laws to govern guardians, the powers given to them can vary dramatically state to state. And yeah, we were hoping 15 years ago that Dave, uh, Dave Jones and legislation he was passing would prevent abuse in California, but uh, witness Britney Spears. And no, to be honest, I don't know the details of, of Britney Spears' case, but I'm certain that BuzzFeed is correct when it says that they found gaping holes in safeguards designed to ensure that only people who are completely incapacitated end up in guardianship. In some states, people can be placed under guardianship without even being examined, while in others, courts can appoint experts with no medical training. I think we'll have more to say about this in the future, sadly. Anyway, in the few minutes uh, that we have left, I think I'll, I'll, I'll try to address a couple issues relating to people from high school, hooking up with people from high school after many decades of not so much as even seeing them. One guy I did make a, a point to approach was um, someone we had on this program. I guess it was, gosh, a year and a half ago. We talked to my former classmate, William Stormer, about um, what they were doing in Stockton to protect their staff as, as COVID was spreading across the land. And yes, we do intend to bring him back, even though uh, it's fair to say Bill and I don't agree on anything politically. Actually, no, that, that's actually not true at all now that I think about it. We do have areas where we would agree. And it might be important, uh, very important in this era we're living in today, to try and find areas of agreement with people you sometimes disagree with. A couple of folks at the reunion made mention of the fact that um, they, they were sort of following the antics he and I had been providing on social media. And I said, well, you know, I respect a guy who will stand up for what he believes in. 
And so, yes, I respect him for doing what he does. It's just that, as I explained, we are operating off of two completely different data sets. Nevertheless, I hope to bring him back in the future, along with some other people from the, the reunion. Mr. Stormer did post on social media an interesting little item showing a picture of numerous classmates of mine who apparently got in the Guinness Book of World Records back in 1975. I vaguely remember this. It did get a little bit of local attention in the press. A picture was published with, I don't know, nine or ten different high schoolers. Well, a little bit post-high school at that point. They would have all been about 21. Getting in the Guinness Book is not something that, you know, is is just, just everybody does. So I asked for an explanation of how it was they got into the Guinness Book of World Records for, I believe, <laughs> the longest pushing of a bed. So I put it to one of the others in the photograph, Mr. Jim McGovern, to, uh, to explain what had happened. I don't think Jim will uh, mind if I repeat what he sent back to me, which is as follows. Okay, here's the short version. Guinness World Records were a big deal in 1975. Doug Knight ever wanted to break one and he came up with the bed push record. The bed was a twin with small bicycle wheels. We got sponsors, Fremont YMCA, McDonald's, and a Pontiac dealership. So food from McDonald's, RV from Pontiac. It was decided to do the run cross-country instead of around a track. So we started in Redding and went south on frontage roads parallel to Highway 5 and 99. We almost got hit twice on the road. We ate at McDonald's almost exclusively. I haven't eaten a Big Mac since. We trashed the RV. We got back to Fremont with 100 miles to go. 1,000 miles had been the goal. So we ran the bed around Fremont all night, noting we pushed 24-7 throughout. We completed the task in 13 days. But we only made the Guinness Book for one year, 1975, as our record was broken about three months later, which they did around a track. So I certainly take my hat off to my high school classmates for their inspired bit of lunacy. On a much more somber note, I, I also take my hat off to one of my classmates who was describing to one of her friends how it was she looked back upon her 30-plus years of marriage to her husband, who had now passed away, not with sadness, but with joy. She said, I, I loved him for 30 years, and my life was so enriched during that time period that I, I cannot look upon you know, his loss with, with, with sadness. And to that, I, I'm, I'm a bit in awe. Another classmate I tracked down by phone in Mexico. Well, at least that's where he had his cell phone. He was enjoying some tacos, some flan, and some beer down in Baja. And I look forward to sitting down with him and having some tacos and beer and flan in California in the months to come. I was struck by the different courses everyone had taken over the past half century. Some people appear to have amassed a great deal of wealth. One I was surprised to learn had flown his private plane down from Sun Valley, Idaho to attend the event. Another classmate at a, at, a, at a brunch in the next day was talking about chatting this gentleman up, noting that she felt very ill at ease. She explained, well, we went out in high school once. It didn't go well. And she noted that she felt a little uncomfortable explaining how she was basically living in a Central Valley town, whereas he'd obviously made, by some standards, a great success of his life. To me, she seemed most troubled by the fact that she was troubled at all. 
Because then and now, she was not the sort of person who was, you know, impressed by material things, shall we say. Another friend from that era who I've remained in contact with actually has a pretty interesting life, whereupon he serves to help the wealthy elites of Marin County who need someone responsible to watch their kid, watch their dog, watch their house, walk their dog, etc. By some standards, it's an odd way to get by in life, but it's not one I disapprove of. Which leads me to want to close with uh, a little story we used in this show many years ago, but it's time to bring it out and use it again. It goes as follows. A rich industrialist was horrified to stroll along a Mexican beach and find a fisherman lying beside his boat, smoking a pipe. Why aren't you out fishing, asked the industrialist. Because I've caught enough fish for the day, answered the Mexican fisherman. Why don't you catch some more, said the industrialist. What would I do with them, the man replied. Well, you could earn more money. Then you could have a motor fitted to your boat, go into deeper water, catch more fish. Then you'd have enough money to buy nylon nets. That would bring you more fish and more money. Soon you'd have enough money to own two boats, maybe a fleet of boats. Then you'd be a rich man, like me. What would I do then? asked the man. Well, he said, you could sit back and enjoy life. Fisherman looked at him and said, what do you think I'm doing right now? Anyway, it's a joke that's been in circulation for some time now, but I think there's a lot of validity in the middle of that. I've known a few really wealthy people who are some of the most miserable individuals I've ever met. And let's face it, Mr. Millen is happy to point out that success and money are hardly the same thing. I agree. They're not the same thing at all. And I want to give credit in closing to the women that uh, I I attended school with so many years ago, who in most cases, who proudly showed the families they had created over the decades. And uh, yeah, the men did it too, just, just not as much kind of a testosterone thing, for which I think we men deserve very little credit. There are two men I'm intent upon bringing to this program in the weeks and months to come who were successes by, you know, no matter how you want to define it. Guys who led rich, fulfilling, interesting lives. In one case, an Iranian exchange student who came here to, like his father, become a successful businessman. And the guy who clearly wins the word for having traveled the farthest to attend a reunion. A man who's now uh, has dual citizenship in Norway. We've used the phrase in this program many times. It's, it's tough to see the picture when you're inside the frame. So I think we should welcome the, uh, the input, the perspective of someone who is definitely outside the frame of the U.S. of A. He did have some pithy things to say, and I hope we can bring him on to tell them to you directly. And that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan who so far has failed in every effort he's made to be listed in the Guinness Book of World Records. Yeah, Mr. Millen, I'm I'm pretty sure the Guinness people removed the listing for dwarf tossing anyway. Our thanks again to environmental activist Dan Bacher. He will be back. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and we look forward to speaking with you real soon.